0: When, when, they were, when they were rehearsing uh, this afternoon, I, just the praise team was rehearsing and everything, I stood out here and I, I tried to act as Baptist as I could, and I just stood there while they sang and just. That, that was better than the halftime show tonight, okay? That was better than the halftime show tonight. <laughs> I want you to look at Romans 5 and the first verse, and then I want you to look at the first verse of Romans 6. Romans 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at the first verse of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Having been justified by faith, am I now just supposed to go on and live like I want to? The obvious answer is no, we're not. In Romans 5, we talked about this peace with God, and and the peace of God begins now with grace. But it continues in eternity, in glory. Grace and glory are tied together in the Word of God. And this peace that begins now continues in glory and throughout eternity. And so in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, Paul begins to talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. And what he tells us is significant. Because he says it's not just historical fact It's not just a biblical doctrine. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the life of the believer is a personal experience. You and I died with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. We were there 2,000 years ago. At that cross, Christ died, and we died. And in that grave, Christ rose and we rose. And so in Christ, because of what he's done for us, Paul is going to argue that in light of being justified by faith, in light of the grace and the peace that we have been given, it is inconceivable that we should continue in sin. Paul cannot imagine even the thought, but he's going to argue with an imaginary critic in this passage. And you see the repetition here of the word know in, verse, uh, in ch- chapter 6. And you can go through and look at it later on, but Paul's got something he wants you to know. Not something he wants you to hope or to think about occasionally or to feel, but to know emphatically in your mind, to know and to reckon and to consider. And, and so, in Romans 6, we have condemnation and justification. We also have sanctification and glorification. Condemnation, we are condemned in sin already, but we have been justified just as if I have never sinned. Justified through Jesus Christ. And then there is sanctification and glorification. Sanctification means to be set apart. Glorification is what happens to us when we get to heaven. Now, the the principle behind those four words is simply this. First of all, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. I-M-P-U-T-E-D. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. But because of sanctification, the righteousness of Christ has been imparted to me. Not only imputed to me, but it has been imparted to me that Christ died for sin and he also died unto sin. And so what you have is God doing something for us and God doing something in us. In the first five chapters, he lays a foundation, which is the foundation for chapters 6 through 8. And if I could sum up what Paul says in Romans in a very simple way, it would be this. You have to believe the message before you can live the life. You have to believe the Word of God before you can live it out. And the way you know you believe it is that you live it out. And so Paul would argue that those that are not bearing the fruit of the gospel have not had a genuine conversion experience. Paul is writing to the church and he's giving evidence and talking about the evidence that comes from believing the gospel. And in Paul's mind, you cannot separate justification, having peace with God, and sanctification being set apart for God. Now, I know that's deep on Super Bowl night. But it is practical stuff that we need to understand because when the Bible talks about sanctification, it doesn't talk about legalism. Right. Sanctification is, and holiness is used over 650 times in the scriptures. It always means to be set apart for. We have been set apart for God, we have been set apart as His instruments. the the sacrifices were set apart. We are now set apart. We are living sacrifices, as he will say in Romans chapter 12. But here are the two questions that come to mind when you read Romans 5 and 6. Now that the penalty of sin has been paid, can I have power over sin? I know that Jesus died for my sin. I I know that Jesus paid the price for my sin, and I can't pay that price. But now that I know that, does that also mean that there is power over sin? And the answer to that question is yes. Not only freed from the penalty of sin, but freed from the power of sin. And then being saved by grace means I also continue to walk by grace. I don't add anything to my salvation after I'm saved. I'm simply an available tool. And so let's dig into it. And we're going to sing at the end again tonight. So I want you to get your singing voice ready as you're thinking through the sermon. Let's uh, let's get into the passage, the difference the cross makes. And let's back up to chapter 5 and verse 18. <clears throat> so then, as through one transgression, that's Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men that past present future even so through one act of righteousness that's jesus there resulted justification of life to all men for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous adam sinned and we became sinners we are sinners because of sin. And then because of one act of, right, one righteous one, Jesus Christ, we find that through the obedience of the one, we've been made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in light of that, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. The Greek word is meganoito. God forbid. Paul is jumping up and down and screaming. Don't even let that thought get in your mind. That because of grace, you sin more. Now, Paul is answering that person out there that's got this thought well you know if if because of my sin I got grace and if I sin more I get more grace makes sense wrong argument bad theology and so Paul is dealing with this and, and he says no that's not the way it is may it never be how shall we who died to sin still live in it John Stott says this this is an objection raised by those who say you cannot have justification by grace alone through faith alone. This is an argument of people who say that teaching people about the grace of God leads to anarchy. Everybody ends up doing what they want to do. You see, when, sometimes when people are set free out of legalism, they go to the other stream of license. But legalism, to be set free from legalism, is not to put you into license. It's to put you into liberty. And grace is not so I can act however I want to act. When I understand that I'm justified by faith alone through grace alone, when I understand that principle, I don't want to do the things that I used to do. Because I understand it. I realize the price that was paid for me. And so Paul says, God forbid, by by no means, you cannot go on living in sin when you're supposed to be dead to it. And so he says, are we to continue in sin? Now, in the Greek, that is a simple future tense. And here's how you read it. We died to sin, past. How shall we live in it, future We died to it. We're supposed to be dead to it. So if we're dead to it, how do we live in it? How can we say that we're living in it? So grace abounds through faith, not through sin. And, And there are people that say, well, you know, I'm just giving God a lot of chances to show grace toward me. No, you're giving yourself a lot of chances to come under judgment. Is what you're giving yourself. Because grace is patient, but grace also has judgment on the other side of it. God is gracious, but he is also righteous and he's also holy. And you cannot forget that. J.B. Phillips said, We who have died to sin, how could we live in it a moment longer? It is a gross perversion of grace to say that I can live however I want to live now that I'm saved. In fact, based on the New Testament, I would question anybody with that mindset being really saved. They may be religious, But if if you've been saved, then there is a conviction of sin and a prompting of the Holy Spirit that comes in when you have walked lightly on the blood of Jesus. Paul is not dealing with occasional sin. He's not saying, oh, you're going to be perfect. You'll never sin again because of grace. He's not dealing with it. What he's dealing with is habitual sin. Habitual acts that keep coming up over and over again. He's not saying you're never going to stumble, you're never going to fall, you're never going to make a mistake. That's why you have grace. What he's saying is, when you understand grace, you're not going to habitually be finding ways to justify behavior. That's not consistent with the Word of God. You're going to be convicted by it, you're going to repent of it, you're going to change, and you're going to get back on track. And with four one-syllable words, Paul makes his point. We died to sin now in 30 years of ministry i've met some christians and i'll use this who don't act like they've died to sin they're not even inclined to think about dying to sin you know the the hardest thing about the doctrine of eternal security is that some people think i made a decision that means i can do whatever i want to do and i'm still going to get to heaven I don't believe that's the doctrine of eternal security. I believe that's the doctrine of human stupidity. Because you are treading on dangerous water when you think I can do whatever I want to do. But because I made a decision when I was nine years old, there's nothing in the Bible that says when you made a decision when you were nine or got baptized when you were 12, that's all you ever had to do. You don't have to worry about your life forever anymore. You see, because when you come to Christ, you come to him as Lord He is Lord and Savior. Very rarely do you see in the Bible Savior and Lord. It's always Lord and Savior. He's called Lord over 400 times. He's called Savior 34 times. He's Lord before he's Savior. And and so when Paul is doing this, he said, we died to sin. It doesn't mean that sin is, is dead in us and we can't be tempted. Now, mark this down somewhere. Paul is not telling us to die to sin. He's saying we're dead already to it. We're dead already to it. Because of what Christ did at the cross, he, he is you reckon yourself dead to sin. You acknowledge what Christ did, verse 11, and you reckon yourself and you count it to be true. Not that, now y'all get out there and all die to sin this week. No, you're supposed to already be dead to it. So that it doesn't come back in and get you. And you see, anybody that says, I've been justified, who doesn't have a desire to be sanctified, I would have to question whether they've been justified. Because if I understand justification is just as if I'd never sinned, that God made me right with Him in a way that I could not be right apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, if I understand that, then I want to be more like Jesus. I don't want to be more like my old self. I've never met anybody that was truly saved, bought by the blood of the Lamb, that ever said, I wish I'd waited longer. I just would like to get a lot more junk in my system to have to work out. Never met anybody like that. You see, justification and sanctification are tied together. So in verses 1 and 2, he explains now what he's introduced in those verses, verse 3. certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was what? Crucified. That doesn't mean that's some, something we wear, wear around our neck. The only reason for crucifixion was to kill something. That's the only reason. The cross is for dying. Our old self was crucified How? With him. Folks, I cannot explain it to you except to say that on that day when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross and shed that blood, I was there with him. My sin, my life, My shame, my downfalls, my shortcomings were there with him. And my old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished, it means that he finished everything to keep you from being a slave to sin. There's no add-on, there's no tape to buy, there's no other book to read. There's no other thought to get in. There's no seminar to go to. He died so that you might not be a slave to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. First thing I want you to see here, we've been set free from sin through the cross and the resurrection, and that is illustrated by baptism into Christ, verse 3. Verses 3 and 4 are talking about spiritual baptism. It's not talking about what we do in church. There is a baptism into Christ and it is not, pardon me, but it's not a second work of grace. It's what happens to you at the moment that you are saved. I don't get Jesus and then somewhere down the road, I get the Spirit. When I get Jesus, I get the Spirit because God cannot be divided. And so if I've got Jesus, I've got the Spirit. I can't have Jesus without the Spirit, and I can't have the Spirit without Jesus. Now, does that make sense? God does not come in segments. He comes in the whole. And when He comes, and when you die to sin, and when you confess sin, and when you recognize that you are in a relationship with Christ, at the moment of conversion, you get the Holy Spirit. You are baptized into Christ. Now, in Scripture, baptism means the washing away of sin, and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. But most often, when Paul uses this term, he's talking about our identity with Christ. Our identity with Christ. When I am baptized into Christ, I am identified with Christ. This morning, Garrett asked the young lady the question What is your confession? I'm identifying, when I stand in those waters and somebody says, why are you here? Because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's my confession of faith. And I am symbolically in those baptismal waters, dying to an old way of life and being raised to walk in a new way of life. It is a picture of what has happened inside of us spiritually. So we are baptized into Christ We are identified with Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, you were baptized into Christ. So water baptism is a picture of a spiritual event in your life. Then there's a baptism into his death and resurrection, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, we're to walk in newness of life. Newness of life. How do you know if somebody's saved? Well, they come to church once a month. Uh, Their name's in the obituaries. Member of Sherwood Baptist Church. Anybody know them? No. Never seen them. How do you know? How do you know if somebody's saved? There's a newness of life. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. There's a progress and a desire discipline and for spirituality and for the things of God there's a development and a growth and a maturity in the life of the believer and so what you have is a picture immersion symbolizes death submersion symbolizes burial and emerging out of the water symbolizes the resurrection So what Paul is saying when he says we've been baptized into his death and resurrection, here's the thought he's trying to drive home to us. In Adam, we were dead in sin. In Adam, you and I were dead in sin. In Christ, we are dead to sin. In Adam, I was dead in transgressions and trespasses and sin. But in Christ, I'm dead to sin. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God will continue in sin. Again, habitual lifestyle of living in sin. Not the occasional mess up. But that habitual, I'm just going to live the way I want to live. I don't care about dealing with these issues in my life. Nobody can talk to me about these things. I'm going to live on my life on my terms. 2 Corinthians 5.20, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. We are baptized into his death and resurrection. He died, I died. He was raised so I could be raised to walk in newness of life. Number three, we are grafted into him. Now, Paul changes the image here. In verses five through seven, he says, we've been united with him. That's a botany term. And it is for grafting a limb into a tree so that that limb can draw life from that tree. What did Jesus do? Jesus took a dead limb, you and me, with no life and no ability to live life on our own. And He grafted us into Jesus Christ so that the life from the tree, Jesus Christ, would flow into the limb of our life and would produce the fruit of righteousness. He grafted us in, He cut us into the tree. And He has given us a relationship with Him. And how do we get that? John 15 by abiding. Abide in me and I I abide in you. If you read John 15, you'll see what this image is about, about being united with him and being grafted into him. God has grafted us in to the tree. We did not deserve to be in it. He cut us into his life so that we could draw life from him, so that we could produce fruit consistent with our confession of faith. Ephesians 5 and verse 5, of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, the second way we've been set free is we've been set free to be distinctive, Verses eleven and following. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, let me just stop. I've met people who've considered themselves dead to sin, but they don't act like they're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And they look like they've been sucking lemons all day long. I mean, I'm thankful that that I'm dead to sin, and I consider that so. But he didn't just say, consider yourself to be dead to sin. He says, consider yourself also to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you're alive, act like it. (laughs) I mean, act like you're alive in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so as to obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, in verses 11, 12, and 13, these are the first commands Paul gives in the entire book of Romans. You get all the way to chapter 6 before Paul ever issues a command. And he says that we are to present the members of our bodies to God alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. So he uses this word, consider King James says, reckon, and that doesn't mean like we say in South, I reckon. So I reckon, well, it kind of does. It means to take into account, to consider, to, to figure, to constantly place oneself to someone's account. It means to impute or to put to another's account. Now look, let's follow it. This is what we're supposed to consider. Verse 2. We died to sin. Verse 10. He died unto sin. Verse 11. We consider ourselves dead to sin. Verses 18 and 22. We've been made free from sin. That's what we're supposed to consider. We died. He died. We've been made free. And so we're to consider ourselves dead to sin. And in verse 11, he's summing up these thoughts of death with Christ and life with Christ. And so there's some results of considering yourself dead to sin. Number one, when you're tempted, you don't have to give in. Well, I just... I just can't help myself. Read your Bible. Well, the temptation is too strong. There is no temptation that has come to you but such as common as man, and God has made a way of escape. Don't call God a liar. Just admit you're not reckoning yourself dead to sin. The Bible says no temptation. Is that what it says, choir? Does it say no temptation? Or does it say all the temptations are covered except for the one that's bothering you? says no temptation, none, zip, nada, zero, none, no temptations. So you don't have to say, well, I just couldn't help myself. Yes, you can. Quit being a whiny baby and stand up and be a godly person. James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Can I tell you something? When I sin, it's because I choose to. I I can't, well, God didn't give me the strength to deal with that. Yes, he did. Read your Bible. Read what it says. I used to have teenagers come to me and say, well, you just don't know the pressure I'm under. Hey, I was a teenager. Don't give me that. Everybody knows what pressure you were under. Well, it's tough today. Yeah, big whoop. You know, go live for Jesus in a country where they kill Christians. And then tell me how tough it is here. I mean, we got people that every day of their life, their life is in danger for Christ. And we got people here that one, one person says to them, hey, you want to do something? Okay. Duh. Read the word. See what it says. You don't have to cave into that. Well, peer pressure is so hard, I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit will put more pressure on you than your peers if you'll listen to the Holy Spirit first. You see, when you have reckoned yourself dead to sin, you've already made the decision before the temptation has come. Right? Somebody help me here, I don't want to be the only one doing this. You see, if, I reckon, if, if I've got a problem... If I've got a problem with things that are on television and they bring thoughts into my mind, then I need to make a choice before I ever turn it on. I'm not going to stop on that channel. Reckon, count it, put it to your account. I'm not going to go there. If I've got a problem with alcohol, I'm going to stay away from the place where the alcohol is. I reckon myself dead to it. If you've got a problem with sexuality and, and immorality, then don't go places where you're going to be alone and force a compromise. It's, it's called, just say no. <laughs> but you do it by reckoning yourself and deciding in advance before it ever comes. I've already decided my answer to that question. I already know where I'm going to stand on that. And see, part of the reason that Christians reel from temptation is we wait until situations come and then we think, maybe I ought to pray about this and see if the Lord would say this is okay. You decide in advance what the Word says, and what the Word says is what you say. And if you want the power of the Holy Spirit to work in your life, then you say what the Word says. And you stand on the authority of Scripture, not on your feelings and your, your wishy-washy changes of attitude. Just stand on what the Word says and watch the power of God work in your life to be able to say no to what you need to say no to and yes to what you need to say yes to. Secondly, when tempted, the power of Christ enables you to resist. Now, let's look. Verses 12 and 13, you'll see these notes in your Bible. The negative is, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. There it is. Bible's always negative. Do not go on presenting the members of your body. Nothing mystical here. He says, just don't do this. But then he goes to the positive. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You know how to not feel guilty? Be dead to sin. Verse 13, but present yourselves to God. This is a once and for all presentation to God that has continuing daily results. Paul said, I died daily. You think Paul had died to sin? I think he had. I think he had reckoned it to be so. But Paul said, I died daily. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I'm living this old life out in this old world, but I can tell you something. I'm crucified with Christ in it. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. This is not about a one-time decision with no lasting effects. This is about a one-time decision that you get up and agree to make again and again and again and again and again. A million times. The Puritans said, God doesn't take away our ability to sin. He gives us the power not to sin. You have in you the ability to do anything and everything. But God has given you the power to do none of it. This is a defining moment in our lives which is followed by continual surrender. So, he says, don't let sin reign in your body or don't yield the members of your body to sin. Now, these commands would not be there if it wasn't possible that we could yield to sin. I, I, I've met a few people in my life that say, you know, Uh, I just don't have a problem with sin anymore. Boy, I'd like to follow them around sometime. I guarantee you, you you let somebody, let them buy a new car and pull out of the parking lot and get slammed on the side. And let's see them not sin. (laughs) Yeah, let's see that. I'd be real spiritual, real spiritual, until something goes in a way I don't want it to go. And that I could be real unspiritual if I choose to. And so Paul says, don't yield to that. Don't cave into that. What he says is, he urges us not to set our minds on things of the flesh, not to walk according to the flesh. And then he says, we're not to make any provision for the flesh. If the flesh were dead, there wouldn't be any point in him telling us that. But folks, the flesh dies hard. You may think you'll reach a point in your life where you won't be bothered by temptation anymore. But I want to tell you, as long as you're breathing and have mental faculties, if you don't reckon yourself dead to sin, you can fall. You can fall. I don't care who you are, I don't care how long you've been in church, I don't care how how much, I don't care. You can fall. If you don't understand, it's the grace of God that keeps you safe. And you don't understand that it is your responsibility to reckon yourself dead to sin. John Stott's quote is a great one. Scriptural and historical biographies and our own experience combine to deny these ideas. Far from being dead, our fallen and corrupt nature is alive and kicking. So much so that we are exhorted not to obey its lust. So much so that we are given the Holy Spirit for the precise purpose of subduing and controlling it. And what would be the purpose of that if it were already dead? Now, when the Bible talks about death, it can talk about a corpse, it can talk about a lot of things. But basically, when the Bible talks about death, it talks about death as the penalty for sin. Adam and Eve live in the garden. They ate a of house and home. Now we have to work. Women have to give birth and it's painful. And now we die. Why? Because of sin. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Sin has a wage that it pays, and it is death. And by the way, we use that verse, wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We use that in the Romans road in sharing the gospel. But just remember, Romans was written to Christians. And Paul was reminding Christians that living in sin leads to death. Don't ever underestimate that God disciplines his children and that God takes seriously sin in the life of his children. And if you and I live in habitual sin and we're not being disciplined by God, there's a good chance we're not children because God doesn't discipline those that are not his children. He disciplines his children. And so death is sin's penalty. In Genesis, it says, In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall die. Revelation says that the eternal destiny of the unbelievers is the second death. And so death is the price and the punishment for sin. Romans 32. Those who sin deserve to die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. And when Jesus died, He bore the penalty for our sin the innocent took on the guilt, and he died, and we died with him. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. That's the first thing. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. That's the result. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's the third thing. So, what's Paul saying in verse 6? Something happened so that something else would happen so that something else would happen. Our old self was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And the key is how you translate these three words, done away with. It does not mean annihilated or destroyed. What these words, it's the same word, by the way, used in Hebrews 2.14 to speak of the devil. And the devil has not been destroyed. He has been rendered powerless. That's what that word means. It means, when he says that it's been done away with, that the body of sin might be done away with, what that word means is it has been deprived of power sin no longer reigns because it's been deprived of its power over you because a greater power is in your life and that is the spirit so the spirit having greater power broke the power of sin and death god broke the chains of sin and death He delivered us from that, and so it has been deprived of its power, and the flesh and sin are deprived of power. That means I don't have to be a slave to sin any longer. The devil can't yank my chain and make me go wherever he wants me to go or do whatever he wants me to do. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, that's either true or it's not. You say, well, you don't know what's in my life. No, but I know what the Bible says. And if I reckon it and consider it and let God do it in me and I choose to cooperate with him, then I believe that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. God has given me the power to walk in a victorious Christian life on a day-to-day basis. Not a hiccup basis, not an occasional basis, not when there's a revival meeting, but in an ongoing application of the victorious life in my life. It can happen if I understand that the power of sin has been done away with. It's been crucified. Now, write down this statement, if you would. The Spirit makes real what we reckon the spirit makes real what we reckon when we consider when we agree with god the spirit says okay i'm gonna make that real in your life you see the debt's been paid the law's been satisfied and i'm supposed to live like it The Spirit makes real what we reckon. So can a Christian still live in sin? It's not impossible. But it is illogical. It's not impossible for a Christian to continue to live in sin. But if you understand what God has done for you according to Romans chapter 6, it's illogical. It just doesn't make sense it's not reasonable it's not logical thinking it's not rational thinking that's why deception and, and deceiving is one of the characteristics of the devil because he's trying to twist what God says to get you to not believe what God says and you'll either believe the voice that he whispers in your ear you believe the voice that God whispers in your ear and, and so the secret is knowing and reckoning not yielding to sin is a choice Mondays are not good days for me. Somebody said preachers ought to always take off on Mondays. Nobody should take off on a day you feel that bad. Not yielding to sin is a choice. There are some Mondays when it'd be better if I'd stay home. Now, staff, I don't want to hear any amens <laughs> out of you. You understand? There are some Mondays when it'd be just better if I, if I stayed home. Because sometimes I get up on the wrong side of the bed. What I need to do is get in, die to self, and get up on the right side of the bed. Yielding to God is a choice. And so who's the boss? Verses 15 through 23. We're closer than you think. Chapter 6 and verse 15. What then? Shall we sin? He's going back just like he did at the beginning of chapter 6. Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Verse 16, don't you know, you're not clueless. Verses 1 through 14, he's telling us that by grace through faith, you've been baptized into Christ. Verses 15 through 23, he's saying, you know that in dying to self and yielding yourself to God, you are now a slave to God and a son of God who is committed to obeying the Father. Wiersbe outlines these verses with three words. Verses 14 and 15, favor. Verses 16 through 20, freedom. And verses 21 through 23, fruit. God has shown us favor to make us faithful, to become fruitful. And by the way, every day in our lives, we're either earning the wages of sin or earning the wages of a holy life. Because our life is paying off somewhere, in some account, somehow. Verses 17 and 18, you were slaves to sin, but now you've obeyed. God has set you free. You were slaves by birth, and now you're slaves by grace. You see, I was a slave to sin, but when God saved me, I became a slave by choice to his grace. And I choose to operate under his control and under his authority because his authority gives me power to live his life on this earth. Verse 19, the fruit of your old slavery was uncleanness, and lawlessness. We were morally bankrupt. We were totally depraved, resulting in further lawlessness. Folks, sin is never stagnant. Iniquity always leads to more iniquity. I don't know how many times I've I've had somebody say, well, you know, I'm doing this, but I'd never do that. You let them live in that sin long enough and they'll do that. And then they'll do that and then they'll do that, and then they'll do that. And before you know it, you, you don't, don't, ever say, don't ever say if you've read your Bible, well, I've got this little problem over here. I've got this little issue. I'm just doing this little thing right here. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. You will not be satisfied. You say, well, if, you know, if it, it's like the alcoholic. If I just, I'm just going to take one drink, but then you're going to want two. And then you're going to want three. And then you're going to want the whole bottle. And he won another bottle, and another bottle, and another bottle. I had, a, I had uh, dinner with a guy in uh, Gatlinburg while we were up on study week, and he teaches 12th grade boys in Sunday school. And he said, I've got to teach a lesson on alcohol. And he said, I, I need to know what, what I need to say to him. He said, because I, I can't find anything in there about abstinence. I said, okay. I said, well, then just do this. I said, just put you 10 glasses of water in the front of your Sunday school classroom and say, now one of these glasses has arsenic in it. I need just one volunteer to come up and drink. I'm not going to tell you which glass it's in. But one of them has arsenic in it, and the minute you swallow it, you're going to be dead. So any volunteers to come up, because one out of ten people that take their first drink become alcoholics. One out of ten in America. Now, if you said to somebody... One out of ten people that drink a glass of water up here on the platform is going to die. They say, well, I'm not going to drink that water. I'll go out and get some water somewhere else. Why? Because they got enough sense to know that arsenic will kill you. But see, the devil sold us a lie. He says, you can play around the ages and you can control it. But you can never control sin. It controls you. Until... You're dead to it. And you reckon yourself dead to it. So look at the characteristics of sin. Verses 17 and 19, it enslaves us. It enslaves us. We become slaves to sin. Verses 20 and 21, it doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't satisfy us. And verses 16, 21, and 23, it ends in death. Verse 18, we're slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, present your members as slaves to righteousness. Verse 22, we're enslaved to God. Ron Dunn said, our change is revealed in three ways. And they're going to come up because we're about to start singing. Our change is revealed in three ways. Number one, a change of ownership. I'm a slave to someone new, to Jesus Christ. It's a change of ownership, verses 16 and 18. Secondly, it is a change of obedience. A change of ownership. I have a new boss. It's a change of obedience. I no longer obey sin, I obey the Savior. I no longer do what the devil tells me to do. I do what the Lord tells me to do. So it's a change of ownership. It is a change of obedience. And thirdly, it is a change of objective. Verses 21 and 22. Let me give you a summary statement, and then we're going to stand and sing. The victorious Christian life is very simple and so here's the statement it is not only believing in God it is becoming like the God you say you believe and how do you do that you're dead to sin you reckon yourself to be dead to sin say well I've already blown it once today reckon yourself dead to sin confess it, move on Don't let it become a habit. Die to it. The victorious Christian life is not only believing in God. The devil believes. The victorious Christian life is becoming like the God you belong to. And folks, here's what has to happen. We have to look more like Jesus a year from now than we look today. And we have to let him cut those things out of our lives and deal with those things. And we have to cooperate with him because now we are slaves to righteousness. And so we don't put ourselves in situations and we don't allow ourselves to get in opportunities where we could stumble and fall. We say, you know what? I'm smart enough to know that that's an area where the devil can trip me up. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. And so we stay away. And when you stay away, you're reckoning yourself dead to sin. Not to sins, but to sin itself. That you want to give it no opportunity in your life. When you consider the fact that when you were there at the cross, the old song says, He had you on His mind. Did you know that? Did you know that when Jesus was dying on the cross, the omnipotent God of heaven, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, sovereign God who laid aside his glory so that he might be crucified for our life, that when he was on that cross, he thought about Garrett Grubbs. Did you know that? He thought about Brandon Jones. He thought about Steve Sadler. He thought about Willie Simmons. He thought about William Sadler. He thought about you. He thought about me. Why? Because when he said, it is finished, he was saying to each one of us, you don't have to yield to sin anymore. I have taken sin to the cross and I have died so that you can live my life. I've shown you how to live. Now I'm going to send the Spirit to empower you to do it. So reckon that it's true. And folks, I want to tell you, there are angels singing the glories of God that have never experienced salvation. The Bible says the angels don't even understand what we understand because they've never experienced grace, and we have. So we're going to sing, and we're going to start by singing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. There's not a thousand tongues in this room, but I want you to stand. And I want us to sound like a thousand. All right? And we're going to join with the angels and with those that have gone before us, and we're going to sing praises to God. And as we do, if you need to come down to this altar and pray, if you need to talk to a staff member,